Good morning, fellowship. How are you? Thanks for being here this morning. For those of you that are with us on live stream, thanks for being here as well. So this morning, I want to start by reading a psalm to us. This is Psalm 100, and it's, it's a good reminder uh, this morning that cynicism, apathy, and anger about whatever situation we're in actually isolate us more than anything else. That what we desire is connection with the Lord and connection with people. And whenever we're angry or apathetic or cynical about a situation, it actually draws us farther away from that. And so this psalm reminds us to rejoice in the Lord. And if you're like me, a lot of times you hear kind of a command in the Bible, rejoice in the Lord. And maybe it seems really distant, far off, or maybe even inauthentic. But this morning, I want to remind us of the goodness of the Lord, that his love endures forever. And so hear these words from Psalm 100. says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Hear this part. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So wherever you find yourself this morning, I wanna, I wanna invite you to lift your hearts to the Lord, to lift your eyes, to get your eyes fixed on him this morning, not your present situation, but on him. And together as one, let's lift our voices to the Lord of the heavens. So will you stand with us? Let's sing this together. I cast my mind. Think about these words. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior don't miss this.
would have to tell you how deeply our wounded country needs prayer right now. It seems we've never been more divided and an election looms on the horizon. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that God is in control. To help you in this commitment, our senior leadership team has written prayers to help guide you through daily intercession for our country. These prayers are in no way exhaustive, but only a prompting to help guide you in ways to pray. To subscribe, visit the link shown on the screen. If you're already signed up for our Advent and Easter devotionals, you will automatically receive the daily prayers via email and no further action is necessary. Please spend time interceding for our nation and leaders each day as you lift your praises and prayers to God. Then allow Him to use you as an instrument of His peace. We must do all we can to allow the love of Jesus to flow through us into the hearts and lives of others. He is the only one who can bring healing and hope to our nation during these difficult days. Let it be known that the people of Fellowship Bible Church of Northwest Arkansas believe in the power of prayer and the sovereignty of our God. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. We do want to ask you to please join us in praying, especially during this season, during this month uh, for our nation. I mean, this is a time that we desperately need to be calling out to our Lord and just for him to intervene um, in our lives and, and, and our nation, to be honest. Hey, my name is Brian Pope. I'm the Global Outreach Director here at Fellowship, which means basically missions pastor, if you're part of another denomination before this one. That's usually the title that they give it. And this right here is the Great Commission. And most Christians I know get really excited about this verse. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And it's usually at that point that we get a little twisted, maybe a little confused, and we start thinking, does all nations really mean all nations? And if it does mean all nations, does it mean that I need to go? And if I don't go, am I being disobedient? And then we start feeling guilty and kind of what's going on here? And let me just tell you that I believe that all of us as followers of Christ have a role to play in the Great Commission. And all nations means all nations. And for some of us, it actually means physically going but for others, it means supporting. And so uh, we are at Fellowship. We are sending out people, and it's going to be exciting. In the next few years, we plan on sending out a lot of people uh, from this very congregation to go to the nations, to make disciples, and to see churches planted. But we also want to partner with organizations that we believe are doing a really good job of this. And this morning, I just wanted to introduce you to one of those organizations. Rich, would you just come up? Rich is with Pioneer Bible Translators, and we literally, this is not an exaggeration, we've been spending the past couple of years just getting to know y'all. Like, we've been dragging our feet because we really want to know the organizations that we're going to ask you to get involved in. So, Rich, could you tell us about Pioneer Bible Translators and the ministry that y'all do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Um, so, Despite our name and what people assume when they hear our name, our focus is evangelism, discipleship, and church planting, but we do that through Bible translation. So what does that look like? Well, when one of our missionaries first got to the village in West Africa, the, the chief called in a young leader from the predominant religion of their people group and even their region of the world. His name was Abraham, and he said to Abraham, I want you to keep an eye on that foreigner. And Abraham was surprised by what he saw. At, at first, he recognized that this foreigner that he'd heard so much negative about actually spent a lot of time in prayer. And he also discovered that this foreigner had his own holy book, and he spent a lot of time in that holy book. And that holy book had stories in it with some of the same characters as Abraham's holy book, but it had a lot more information. And he also noticed that the foreigner had this large barrel, and when it came time to plant his rice, he asked 
the missionary if he could borrow his barrel to soak his rice seed because it would germinate better. And of course, the missionary said, sure, go ahead. Well, he, he planted the first batch of rice and had the second batch soaking when one of the missionaries on the team became very convicted to pray for the rice seed. And they asked Abraham if that'd be okay. And Abraham was like, you want to pray for that rice I dumped in that water? Sure, go ahead, knock yourselves out. Not a literal translation, but that's what he was saying. And uh, months and months passed. That was long, long forgotten. And then uh, eventually, Abraham starts showing up at the door and saying, oh, can you pray for this? And a few days later, can you pray for that? And a few days later, and the missionary said, Abraham, what's the deal? He said, well, he said, that rice seed that, that you, he said, the first batch that I soaked, he said it produced an excellent crop. But he said, that second rice batch of rice that you prayed for produced six times the amount of rice. Nobody has ever seen a crop like that. Sometimes God kickstarts the evangelism, which is exactly what he was doing there. Usually what it looks like is they begin translating passages of the scripture. They go out in the community and gather people together to listen. Now, in most of these communities, they don't have a written language prior to the missionary getting there. And so this is a unique event. It draws a lot of people, and they're getting feedback on what the people understand and don't understand. It's a part of the translation process, but it's also very evangelistic. And uh, when, they, when they translated the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Luke and shared it with Abraham, they were not prepared for his response. They asked him what he understood, and he said, I want to pray like that. And the missionary was taken aback, and he said, well, Abraham, you could certainly pray like that, but you would have to become a follower of Esau or Jesus. And he said, okay. The missionary thought, he's not getting it. He said, Abraham, to become a follower of Esau or Jesus you would have to give up your religion. And Abraham said, and this is almost an exact translated quote, all my life I have wanted to pray like that. I will do anything, give up my religion. Abraham became the sixth or seventh Christian ever in the history of his language group, what we would call an unreached people group, right? And... Um, now, Abraham has joined the translation team and day in, day out is wrestling through the best way to express the word of God in the language of his people. And we call that discipleship. And let me tell you, 5, 10, 15 years of that really ground somebody in the word of God and understanding what it's all about. If Abraham follows in the footsteps of many that have gone before, I'll tell you about Danza and the next people group over, he'll become the leading church planter and evangelist among his people and lead many to the Lord. Right now, Danza's got um, 22 places where they're doing everything from just a basic Bible study to a full-on church that has grown out of one of those Bible studies. And so that's the way we do evangelism, discipleship, and church planting through Bible translation. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. Now, probably a lot of people don't know, there's still so many languages out there that just don't even have the Bible in their language, that, that people right now, if they woke up and, and wanted to study about God, couldn't in their native language. How many languages are in the world? How many translations have there been? How many are we still working on? So yeah, most people are shocked to discover there's over 7,000 languages, unique, distinct languages on this planet. Right now, we're down to about 2,200 where Babel translation hasn't started. It's kind of an overwhelming number, but at the rate Bible translations are being started, we're looking at another 15 years to get every remaining translation project that's needed started. Imagine that. 15 years, every language on the globe would have the Bible translated in their language. And that's what we want to ask y'all to join and be a part of. And so this was just an introduction for y'all to get to know them over the next uh, few months. Uh, you'll be hearing more about them. And your president has really built this organization on prayer. I don't think there's anything more fitting than we can do right now <laughs> right. than to pray. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much that you are active in the world. We thank you, dear Lord, that there are people out there willing to risk it all to translate your word into 
other people's languages so they can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And God, we want to partner in that work. And so God, I pray that you just make it clear over these next couple months, over the next couple years, or how Fellowship Bible Church can partner in with what Pioneer Bible Kingsville is doing in that somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation can one day be worshiping around the world. In your name we pray. Amen.
God, as a church, would we keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts fixed on you and you alone and follow hard after you. Camp, I did youth group, all those sorts of things. I was at church every Sunday and but I, my whole life, I had heard about all these different spiritual experiences that people were having, and I was kind of like, well, I've never really had any of those experiences. And so that really made me start to question God. Um, so I really just kept playing this Christian life through high school. I went to the University of Arkansas. I met a guy that I worked with that was an atheist, and he kind of started like essentially mentoring or discipling me in atheism. One day we were sitting out on the old main lawn at the University of Arkansas, it was a beautiful day. He starts telling me about atheism, almost as if he was like sharing the gospel with me, but atheism instead. And we're talking about atheism and at one point I just broke down weeping on the old main lawn, like uncontrollably crying. He didn't know what to do, he's kind of caught off guard. Uh, and I was crying in this moment because I realized I was an atheist. I thought religion was for dumb people that needed a crutch because they were afraid to die one day. And I, I realized in this moment that, that this also meant life was meaningless. And so I just kind of went on from there, um, continuing to kind of spiral down into atheism more. And then eventually I had a friend that invited me to a, a college uh, winter conference. And I was like, well, I like skiing, so I'll go to that. And I can do the church thing for a couple days. And so I went, I didn't really listen that much, but I saw this uh, opportunity to go to a summer project with a campus ministry. I was like, okay, nine weeks on the beach, like I'll go do that. And I met my leader and I told him the first day, I was like, hey Dave, I'm an atheist. And he told me, hey man, that's, that's fine, not a big deal. And he kept, he just kept loving me. Um, he kept serving me, but on top of that, he just kept sharing the gospel with me over and over again, asking me the hard questions that that no one had ever really bothered to ask me. I started studying some philosophy and some science and things to kind of see where I thought the evidence pointed. And I, I came to the conclusion eventually that it was actually illogical for me not to believe in a God. But I was like, is that Jesus? Is that God the Bible? And that summer, what I'd heard my whole life finally clicked. And so I decided uh, to follow Jesus. I was sitting in a Barnes and Noble, I think, in Destin, Florida. And I was like, you know, I, I think I'm gonna do this. I, I think it just shifted. I was looking for this grand, you know, like the clouds in the sky to like call my name. And that's what I thought, I, how I would know if God's real, um, instead of kind of 
experiencing him through his word, um, experiencing him through other people, um, fellowship with other believers. And I started following Jesus. And I remember my atheist friend calling me and saying, man, what are you doing? Like, I told you if you went down there, like all these different things. And he was like, you're gonna be over this in a month or two. I remember him being very actively opposed to it, just like I was very actively opposed to it beforehand. And, and I, I kept following Jesus and um, by his grace, you know, I continued to grow. And now I, I have all those things that I, that I didn't have prior that I was looking at for in other places. And whether it be a party or uh, girls or a drug or whatever it was, I, I found purpose and meaning and uh, acceptance um, and joy uh, and, and community in following Jesus and um, and now I now my ambition and goal in life is to just like Dave gave brought the gospel to me is to bring the gospel to other people and go to those who think it's dumb and think they don't need it. Wow. And I really appreciate Hunter being willing to open up. It, it takes courage to share that kind of thing on such a large scale. And there's some things I hope you noticed in there, some things that really jumped out at me. Did you notice, in his own words, he said he was being discipled in atheism? And that reminds me that we're all always being discipled by the world. We're always being trained, and we don't even usually realize it. Whether it's marketers who are training us to believe that if we just purchase that next item, we'll be happy. Or social media that's training us to find our self-worth in clicks and likes, we're always being discipled, trained by the world. Another thing that jumped out at me was just his moment of conversion when he was in Destin and he realized the word of God is not just the word of man, but it actually contains truth revealed by God. And then the other thing that, that really struck me was just that when he returned home, how he was actively opposed by those who were opposed to the gospel, that he had people who said, I knew this would happen. You'll be over it in a couple of months. And the reason those things struck me and the reason I was adamant that we share that video today was that we're gonna see those exact same things were happening in AD 50 in Thessalonica as we continue our series in 1 Thessalonians. So we're gonna be in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. I wanna invite you, go ahead and turn there with me. We're gonna finish chapter two this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to say welcome. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Welcome to those of you who are in the room and to those of you who are joining us online during this nine o'clock hour. Maybe some will be listening later, watching the video later. We're just glad that you're with us, however you're joining us today. I don't know about y'all, but it just seems like everybody's in a better mood today. I don't know, did something happen last night that just changed our outlook on the world? It's a great morning to be together either way. We're in the middle, actually we're near the end of an experience as a church that we're calling Clarity. We've spent the entire year of 2020, actually starting in December of 19, seeking to see Jesus more clearly. And we're ending this entire Clarity experience focused on the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth went to the cross in our place, died for our sins and was resurrected, conquering sin and death and earning for us eternal life. And our case study to look at how the gospel transforms people and even a city is the Greek city of Thessalonica. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, Paul and this band of missionaries brought the good news, the gospel message to Thessalonica and everything changed. Not just for the small band of believers who launched a church, but it began to change the city and the province and even neighboring provinces. This little group of people committed to a new kind of life built on the teachings of Jesus were changing the world. And so as we're gonna pick up where we left off last week, I just wanna remind you that Paul had been worried. He had to leave Thessalonica abruptly and he was worried. Is this little church still following Jesus? Are they standing strong in the face of persecution? And when he got the answer that yes, Yes, this church was doing well. He was so grateful, and he wrote the letter we're studying, and we're gonna see that gratitude right off the bat as we pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes this, We thank God constantly 
for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Remember Hunter's story? He said, I was waiting for the clouds to part and call my name. But the moment was when he realized God was revealing himself through his word, through the Bible. That reminded me of something Lee and I, my wife and I experienced. We, we had a good friend who was an international student and she was a non-believer. And as we tried to share Christ with her, she said, when I see God standing in front of me, then I'll believe in him. Well, a mutual friend gave her a copy of the Bible in her heart language, the language she grew up speaking. And after she started to read that Bible, she said to Lee and I, as I read my Bible, I realized that was God standing in front of me. She received God's word as what it is, not the word of man, the word of God. And that's the first step, isn't it? The first step for any of us to have a reconciled relationship with the Lord is to recognize the truth of God's word and the gospel message that it contains. Paul says he can tell they accepted it because it's changing their lives. It's at work in them. And he says you've become imitators of the church back in Jerusalem, but, but probably not in the way they would have intended. Look at verse 14. He says, for you, brothers, it could be brothers and sisters. Again, that word is in the Greek is siblings. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Earlier, Paul said, you, intimidate, you uh, uh, imitated us, and by doing that, you imitated Jesus. Now he says they're imitating the churches in Judea. That's the area around Jerusalem. They're imitating them by suffering. Now, it's probably not what they were seeking. I know, in fact, that they weren't seeking suffering. I'm not. Are you? Like when people ask you, hey, what is it about Fellowship Bible Church? What, what, do, you, what do you like about going to fellowship? Are you like, you know, it's the suffering. They got some good suffering down there. No, none of us seek suffering, but Paul seems to say here, it comes with following Jesus. And y'all, it's actually a major theme of the New Testament. I did a little research. Paul mentions suffering in his letters 60 times. And rather than getting into the purpose of suffering here in 1 Thessalonians, which he does, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 12, and so if you're interested in studying what is the purpose, what is God's purpose in allowing suffering, 2 Corinthians 12 would be a good place to start. Instead, here Paul talks about the source of the suffering. Look again at the passage with me. He says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Paul's point here is that the gospel has opponents. From the very beginning, there have been those who have been opposed to Jesus and his message. And Paul says those opponents are the cause of the suffering both in Judea and in Thessalonica. And he goes on to say those opponents of the gospel are actually opposed to all mankind because they are preventing the gospel message from going out. They're hindering these messengers of good news that God has sent out. Remember Hunter's story? Those who were opposed to the gospel actively tried to keep him from following Jesus. They tried to talk him out of it. Now, there's a couple of difficult things in this passage that we need to talk about for a minute. First, let's just put it out there on the table. Is Paul being anti-Semitic in this passage? Is he blaming the Jews as a race for everything that's happened? The answer is no, and here's why. First of all, Paul himself was Jewish. and He was actually very proud of that fact. We see that in other letters as he sort of gives us his Jewish 
credentials. All of the other apostles were Jewish, and of course, Jesus himself. Paul definitely did not hate the Jews. The first place he went in every city was to the synagogue. He said in Romans, I go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Paul's heart was for his people, Israel. And we see that heart over in Romans 9. You don't have to turn there. Just look with me on the screen. Paul's writing about Israel rejecting Jesus, and he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul says here is, I would give up my own salvation if it meant Israel would know Christ. So in our passage this morning at 1 Thessalonians, Paul's not speaking of the Jewish people as a whole. He's speaking of a certain group, the group that killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets the group that ran Paul and the other believers out of town, the group that he says hinders the work of the gospel. He's not anti-Jew. His problem with them is not racial, it's theological. And so just as Paul doesn't hate the Jews or any other race, that should be true of us. That we don't hate any race or ethnicity, but we instead see them as people made in the image of God who need to hear the gospel. Here, Paul is only speaking of those who are actively trying to keep the gospel from going out. The second thing that we need to address in this passage is that God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, I know none of y'all walked in here today or logged on on your computer at home thinking, man, I hope we talk about some wrath today. And to be honest, I didn't wake up this morning thinking, yay, I get to talk about wrath. But the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put it in here. And he put it there for a reason. And we're fellowship Bible. And so we're not going to shy away from what the Bible says. So what does the Bible mean when it refers to the wrath of God? Well, my go-to resource, anytime I need a theological definition that's concise and that even I can understand is Dr. Wayne Grudem. Here's what he says. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. And so when we think about it, just as God intensely loves all that is good and right and holy, he intensely hates all that is evil and wrong and sinful. And so God's wrath is closely tied to his holiness, which is his perfection that sets him apart from everything else. But it's also closely tied to his justice, which means that God is always for what is right and that he himself is the standard for what is right. So even though we normally think of wrath as a negative quality, we should actually praise God for his wrath because we don't want a God who would just look the other way when evil is done. I mean, do you get angry when you see wrong? Do you get angry when you think about terrorism? Do you get angry when you think about child abuse? Do you get mad when you imagine someone intentionally harming the people you love most? Of course you do. And so does God. But here's the thing. He also gets angry at my sin. I'm deserving of punishment. I'm deserving of God's wrath because I've done things that don't meet God's standards. I have sinned in my life. And for all of us, when we imagine for even a moment being the object of God's wrath, we should shudder. And Paul says, that's what these opponents of the gospel are facing. But the good news, remember, that's what gospel means, good news. The good news is that Jesus saves us from wrath. When Jesus went to the cross in our place, God's wrath was poured out on him, and now he's turned God's wrath to favor for those of us who've placed our faith in him. Paul says these opponents of the gospel, they're opposed to all mankind because they're hindering people from hearing this message that Jesus saves us 
from that wrath. But Paul has another point to make here. And his other point is that it isn't just these people who are opposed to the gospel. There's more to it than that. Look with me at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, could be brothers and sisters, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Notice here again, we see the intensely personal nature of this letter. Paul has faces in mind, people that he desperately wants to see again. Paul was with them for a short time before this angry mob ran him out of town. And that word torn away, the NIV captures it well when it says orphaned. It's got the sense of this forced, unnatural, painful separation. And Paul wants them to know he desperately wanted to return to them. But he was prevented, he says, by Satan. Now, I know it comes into all of our minds when we see that word Satan. Little red guy, pointy tail, probably a pitchfork, kind of fun to hang around with. That's not biblical. That's Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes is a terrible place to learn theology or physics. Just as you can't run off a cliff and hold up a sign that says, uh-oh, before you plummet to a puff of smoke, this is not the devil. This is not Satan. Satan means accuser, slanderer, adversary. That's why in Hebrew, the word Satan, in the Old Testament, it always has the before it, the Satan, the accuser, the slanderer. So when Paul says, he was hindered by Satan. Paul is referring to a personal, evil, spiritual being whose purposes are opposed to God, his people, and his cosmos or creation. So Satan's a personal being. He's not a myth. He's not a concept. He's not the personification of evil. No, he is an evil personal being. And his purpose, his only goal, is to thwart God's plans. And so he stands opposed to God. He stands opposed to God's people. He's opposed to God's creation. That's why he's always trying to tear down God's good work through death and disease and destruction. And Paul is revealing that this is the spiritual power behind those opposed to the gospel. Those who persecute the church. It's Satan who's opposed to God. Even though Satan was defeated at the cross, he still continues to attack God's people and God's work and God's message. Now, there are a couple of potential errors that we can make when it comes to Satan. The first and most common one is denial, to just ignore him, to pretend like he doesn't exist. But we ignore Satan's existence at our peril there's a famous line that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Jesus called him a thief. Jesus said he only wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said he's the father of lies. And so we need to be aware. Satan wants us to believe his lies. Satan wants us to take the bait when he tempts us. And so we don't want to ignore him. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme where we live in fear or undue fascination with Satan. We shouldn't spend a lot of our time speculating about Satan and demons, nor should we live in fear of them because they have no power over us. Their power was broken at the cross. One writer said, the devil made me do it is never part of Paul's theology. And so Satan is not the one to blame for our own failings. And so we should have a balanced view, not fearful or overly fascinated, but also not in denial, open-eyed about the reality of Satan. And Paul's main point here is that Satan, the accuser, ultimately is the source of the suffering that the church is enduring 
The gospel has an enemy, and the enemy is Satan, and Satan will use everything at his disposal to stop this gospel message from going out. And in many parts of the world, the suffering that people are still experiencing today is similar to what they experienced in Thessalonica. My son has a shirt. It's got a cross on it, and it says, this shirt is illegal in 53 countries. And we need to pray for those believers. And we need to support organizations like Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, Pioneer Bible Translators, who are taking the good news of the gospel into places where Satan is actively trying to hinder it. I was talking with Brian earlier in the week. We were talking about what persecution looks like, and he said, just imagine what it would mean to have to be disowned from your family to follow Jesus. What it would mean to be kicked out of your family, lose your job, lose your place in society because you've turned to the Lord. He told me a story about an international student She came here, she didn't know Jesus. She got involved at fellowship. She came to know the Lord. She wanted to be baptized. And she said, I want to wait until my mom's in the country. And so right over here in this baptistry, her family of faith gathered around her, her friends, those who had led her to the Lord, and her mother. She was baptized. And before her mom left the country, she said, you're out of my life. I don't have a daughter anymore cost. That's a real cost of following Jesus. And those of us who don't live under that kind of active persecution, we should still feel at times like our faith is costing us something. If we never feel the tension, if we never feel like we're swimming upstream, we need to look at our life. Maybe we're never around non-believers. We're insulated. Or maybe our life looks so much like the world that we never feel that pressure. We never feel it when we say, no, this thing that society says is good, the Bible says is wrong. We never feel it when we say, no, I can't do that thing that everyone else is doing because I'm setting that side of time. I'm setting aside that time for corporate worship or community group. If we never feel that tension, something's wrong. But with all this talk, Satan, wrath, persecution. That's not where the passage ends. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says, Oh, Thessalonians, we may be suffering today. Satan may be hindering our efforts right now, but one day, One day the Lord Jesus is going to return and that will be a day of glory and joy because Jesus saves us from wrath and for joy. One day Jesus will return and put everything right. He won't just fix what is broken. He'll put it back like it was never broken to begin with. Jesus said, look, I make everything new. And look what Paul says will be his joy, his glory, his crown of boasting. It'll be the Thessalonian church. It'll be those people who responded to Paul's message of the gospel and who are now joining him in worshiping our Messiah, our King, the Lord Jesus, at his return. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do for just a moment. I want you to imagine that day. I want you to imagine that day that Jesus returns. Look around you. Who's your joy? Who's your crown of boasting? Who are you overwhelmingly glad to see there with you, worshiping the Lord? Will it be somebody that you shared the gospel with at work or at your school? Maybe it'll be that person that you helped them just walk through something really hard in community group, and now here they are with everything being set right. Maybe it'll be somebody that was a student in your cell group that you led, and they didn't come to the Lord during cell group, but later in their life. God watered that seed that you planted and they came into the kingdom and now there they are with you, worshiping God. Do you feel that? Man, I do. I feel that in my soul and I so want to be part of that. I so want to look around on that day and know that God used me in some small way to help these people take one step closer to the Lord. And I would love nothing more 
said for every one of you and everyone who's watching online to be part of that day. So if you've never prayed to receive Christ, if you've never accepted the free gift of salvation that he offers, today could be the day. Don't let the opponents of the gospel stop you. Don't worry about what somebody else thinks or will say. Look forward to the day that you could experience that joy, that you could know that you've been saved from wrath and for joy. And so for the rest of us who've already made that commitment, here in just a moment, we're gonna take communion together, not just here in the worship center, but people who are watching at home. And so if you're watching on the live stream, now's the time, whatever juice and bread you've got, grab it, because we're gonna take communion together in just a minute. And as we worship together, let's prepare our hearts to take communion, and let's continue to just consider what it's gonna be like on that day. Let's think about our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting. Consider the church, the bride of Christ that we're so blessed to be called into. And let's remember his death and look forward to when he comes. The king who has defeated death and Satan and who will rule forever. together let's sing this asking this I want to be near
If you haven't unwrapped your communion yet, go ahead. Don't forget the bread is in the top of the wrapper. And as you're doing that, this song reminds us that moment at the burning bush. Moses said, what's your name? And God said, I am. And from the very beginning, the great I am, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. He's had an opponent. Satan has been actively working against God from before the time of creation. But we're also reminded by this song, Satan and the demons, they run and flee. They can't stand before him. And we remember that Satan was decisively defeated at the cross. And so every time we take communion, we remember that victory, the sacrifice of Jesus that crushed the serpent's head, defeated Satan forever. And that was purchased through his body. Do this in remembrance of him. Likewise, his blood was poured out for the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's end this morning by praising our Lord. He's the one who paid the debt that we owed. Let's just sing this together. Oh, praise the one. Oh, praise the one paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. Oh, praise the boasting, joy. So this week, let's go out there and live like that and share that with those around us. The prayer room is open again. Even in the time of COVID, we have people back there who would love to pray with you and for you. We love you. Have a great week in Jesus.